Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBAO. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So I have been on the road. We're, this is Mueller Day, we should say. It's Wednesday afternoon. It's Mueller Day. I spent all of Mueller morning on the plane, so I only – on two planes. So I only was able to consume Mueller through hot takes and tweets, which is like literally – sounded like I'm pretty sure it was a terrible way to consume it. No, that's about how I consumed it too. I had a bunch of stuff I was running around doing this morning because – as it turns out, Mueller Day is not like a bank holiday or a national <laughs> holiday. What? It is a day when most normal people, including people who work in the political space, still have work to do. So uh, I, too, have been at this point consuming it via the hottest of hot takes on social media. Um, but it seems as though we did not miss a ton. I mean, it was just a, I mean, it, Twitter Twitter disagreed, you know, whether this was important or whether this was less important, whether the optics were good or bad, whether it's, you know, on the good people of Twitter to demonstrate why this is important for everybody else to pay attention to or, you know, the people decide whether or not they care about this. Um, and then there was like a, you know, like the some Republican members of Congress asking questions that seem to come out of left field but are not if you are consuming the conservative media that those members consume. So anyway, so that's that was my consumption. But it's hard to really get a full a full deep dive when you're just watching people kind of pop off on Twitter. I felt kind of ill about the whole thing, honestly. But hopefully your week went has gone better. I feel like my week has gone better than than Bob Mueller's for sure. Uh, I so this is for our listeners coming up this fall. Um, there was a I got a summons for grand jury duty. Fun, fun. Um, unfortunately, saying I am the super important co-host of the pollsters is not considered no. an adequate excuse from the District of Columbia to give me that month and a half of my life back. But what if they, I write you and write you a note? I do. <laughs> <laughs> not suspect that that is going to work. I write very good notes. <laughs> well, oh, I would type sure it. I would type you it. Do. I'm sure you do. Um, so unfortunately, so the good news is I got it postponed, but not eliminated. So there will be a couple of weeks later on this fall when I will have to hand the microphone over to uh, to someone else to take over for me or Margie and I will have to record like on weekends and in strange periods of time. Which doesn't sound I'll super just like fun, bust so. <laughs> into the courtroom with like the mic. I'll be like, excuse me, I have just I have an emergency. I need to talk to Kristen right now. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Order I'm in sure the court. The Everybody tricks. stop. I'm sure. They'll like pull like, me away. They'll like do one cop on each side. I'm like, no, no, wait. That's that's my good mic. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why <laughs> this has gone off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> this terrible vision I've had. Okay, well, so what are the, we, so what are the top lines? Yeah, we, we're gonna we, hurry we, before I get myself imaginary arrested. <laughs> <laughs> 
So this week's top lines, uh, we will discuss Trump versus the squad. Now that it has been a couple of days, we'll see what polling has come back about what people think about Trump's rally cries and more. We'll talk a little bit about what the polling showed ahead of today's Mueller testimony, um, as well as some new polling on Americans' trust in one another. And we'll wrap up by going across the pond and talking a bit about the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson. Yes. So first, let's talk a little bit about Trump's approval rating. There's lots of Trump stuff out there, but his approval rating, you know, it's the same. 43.9% approve, 53.9% disapprove. This is from RCP, the RCP tracker. Um, You know, I'm not going to say, well, we'll see what happens after the Mueller hearing, whether this changes, because, you know, because we know where where this usually ends up. It's going to, Margie. I got a spoiler alert for you. (laughs) Let's just wait and see. No, but um, but at any rate, this is where he is in terms of his approval rating. And, you know, I, I think there's been so there's been an interesting sort of related to this, like, trio of Nate Cohn articles. And we talked about one of them last week, which was the one about turnout that, you know, the conventional wisdom that a surge in turnout helps Democrats full stop. The end is not always true because in some of the states where – Trump won in uh, in the Midwest, like uh, Wisconsin and in Michigan and, and Pennsylvania, that, you know, you actually, if you have a surge in turnout among whites uh, in who maybe were like not as likely to vote in the midterms, but would be likely to vote for Trump, that that actually he could do well with increased turnout there. But the calculation is different in Sunbelt states. Then on Friday, he had another piece that was about looking at Wisconsin specifically as likely to be kind of the pivotal state. That the tipping point state that would decide who won and that, you know, won the kind of the views uh, or being able to kind of pin down Trump's approval rating in Wisconsin is imprecise the way these things are. You know, if, if this is a range. It's not an exact number. We're not talking about like some kind of specific census count. This is approval rating, which is, you know, is going to have some sort of range of ambiguity and uh, and variation depending on, you know, which poll you're looking at and turnout estimates and so on. But again, if, you know, turnout surges among white voters in Wisconsin, that could increase the likelihood that that's a tipping point state for Trump. Um, and then there's a new piece out today, which has a little bit less data on it, but still kind of talks about Trump's use of uh, racially infused, as the Times had it uh, like a week or so ago, but these, you know, kind of uh, uh, racially hot and, you know, rhetoric, whether it's the squad or, or something else that he, you know, turns to time and time again in a way that, you know, may help in some of these states where he's trying to boost turnout that are disproportionately white in the Midwest. So, So that's kind of the, like, one of the conversations that's going on um, and it's related to what he's been doing with, you know, his attacks on on the four women members of Congress um, and also is related to some of the, you know, polling that we've seen from the last week or so about how people view the tweets themselves. So that's, you know, that's what's out there. People are trying to put some 
quantitative discussion around Trump's strategy to talk about race in a way that's, you know, obviously causes a huge amount of dislike and strong feelings against the president. But does it have some at the same time, some positive effect for him with a certain group of voters that he needs? So I'm particularly interested in this analysis by Nate Cohn. And by the way, if you are not someone who is very online, you might not be aware of the Nate fight, but there is uh, the various Nates, Nate Cohn, Nate Silver, uh, Harry, Nate Enton. I don't think that's actually his middle name. I'm just making that up with his middle name. Um, he should change He's his, his middle man. name. He's his own man. <laughs> Join the Nates. Um, but there is, there's a battle right now about things like how likely is it that Trump will win in the Electoral College but will lose the popular vote by an even bigger margin than last time around? I feel like Dave Dave Nate Wasserman is also <laughs> included in this conversation. Um, yeah. But the other thing that I think is so fascinating about, um, you know, this, this analysis you mentioned of turnout and at what point it can benefit uh, benefit. Trump or not is, you know, the conventional wisdom is that Republicans supposedly benefit when turnout is lower and the Democrats benefit more when you really boost turnout. The Democratic voters are disproportionately those who are harder to turn out or lower propensity, whether you're talking about younger voters, et cetera. And so this is interesting because it, it sort of says that the story is more complicated than that, that if you are talking about going from 50 percent voter turnout to 100 percent voter turnout, then, yep, that's probably the case. But if you're talking about going from 50 percent voter turnout to 65 percent voter turnout, it actually might work the other direction that based on. And I think the way you do an analysis like this is really cool that you're you're kind of looking at individual voter propensity to vote like some kind of model. And so then you say, look, okay, if all the people who are, and and it it doesn't work exactly like this, but if all the people who are likely, you know, 70% likely to vote, if they all vote, then what does this look like? Okay, what happens when you add in the people between 0.7 and 0.75? Again, this is a very rough, this is not actually a completely correct way of explaining how these, these, this modeled out, uh, this analysis works. But It is kind of interesting to think like some of these white non-college educated voters who Trump really activates, they are also not the likeliest of voters, um, but maybe they're slightly more likely to vote than someone who's, say, you know, a a 19 year old college student, you know, what have you. And so the, the line is not a straight line of the more people vote, therefore, the worse it is for Trump. Like there is this little bump around like 60 to 65% turnout in a state like Wisconsin or Pennsylvania um, that does give Trump an advantage at a certain point if, if turnout is higher than usual. Um, so I just, I, I thought that was, that was kind of neat because it, it adds some complexity to, I think, an assumption that people, people think there's like this linear real relationship between more turnout equals better for Democrats. And there are certain cutoff points where that's not necessarily true. I, I mean, here, but here's the like the next step of that, which is, OK, so if you're Trump and you want to boost turnout, you know, look, we're old enough to remember when Republicans did an autopsy that wasn't supposed to be called an autopsy where they wanted to reach out to non-white voters so they could kind of recapture the strength with Latinos, you know, that they had under George W. Bush. Right now you have, you know, Trump using race as a way to kind of boost enthusiasm with his base. And so, you know, you could argue like this is this is a thing that's 
this is a thing that's, you know, a smart political strategy, even if it has some, you know, it has obvious harmful effects to the rest of the country or to, you know, the whole country and our policy and our sort of, you know, sense of whether or not we're divided. Or you could argue, you know, it's bad for the country and it's bad political strategy. I mean, and, you know, I think there are some folks who have been arguing out there like, well, this may be bad that he does that. We don't like this, but it's a smart political strategy because there are voters in his base who, you know, get excited about, you know, excited at this. I mean, the third thing is like, you know, are voters, are voters in his base looking for this and he figured it out? Or is he moving voters in a way where they were not necessarily looking for this kind of, you know, racial rhetoric, but he moved them in a way that now they realize that there was something, you know, there are voters now excited about this who were not looking for that out of a candidate before, but somehow now have moved to being enthusiastic about this kind of language. Um, There was one thing that they had, and this was just in sort of the, you know, in some of these Midwestern battleground states where they looked at, uh, and this is with the in the, one of the Nate Cohn articles, immigration questions by Trump voters, Clinton voters, and Midwestern Obama Trump voters. And, and Midwestern Obama Trump voters were very much like Trump voters on how they felt about undocumented immigrants and how they felt about the Muslim ban. There was, there was a difference in how important they thought the issue of immigration was. That's where, like, the biggest difference was, where Trump voters were particularly likely to say that was important. Obama-Trump voters were a little bit lower. Obviously, on all these measures, they were much higher than Clinton voters on these measures. Um, so is there something about turnout or motivation among some group there? And does that change how we feel about this? You know, and, and then and then we can talk about the views toward his tweets kind of overall. There's such a strong unity among the left on how people view Trump's language that the overall numbers really demonstrate how there is a consensus emerging that or that has emerged that his language is racist. Like you have polling question, like, is this racist? And people saying yes. And, you know, that's coming from real clear unity on the left on that and some division on the right. Yeah. I mean, if you look at CBS YouGov's polling on this, when they ask people the ideas expressed in Trump's tweets, were they racist or not racist? Among white Americans, they are split. 41% say racist, 41% not racist. Um, so overall, in the aggregate, a plurality, 48% say it was racist, uh, 34% say not racist, and 18% say neither. I guess neither could kind of mean you think it lives in like a gray area. I, I'm not totally sure what what a neither response would be to that question. But right. yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I I don't know how I feel about the like – what is the strategic value of him doing this? Because, I mean, you could slice it a million different ways, right? Oh, on the one hand, this, you know, we talked last week about that unsourced poll that the squad was not very popular. Well, all of a sudden, by being the subject of Trump tweets that are over the top, then does that make the squad more popular among Democrats? Does it make them the face of the Democrats? Does it make Democrats more okay with them being the face? I mean, like, there are a million ways you can sort of look at this and think, oh, is this like six, is Trump at the six-dimensional chess again? But I just think at a certain level, this is just how the guy feels. And, like, he can't help himself. And this is just him. Like, I, I don't know to what extent this is, like, some grand strategic thing. Because I also don't know to what extent, like, if you're someone who likes what he had to say in those tweets, like, were you not already voting for him? Like, I, I, that's why I'm just sort of like the idea that this is all like some big strategic whatever. I don't know. I have just tried to shy away from that, from the punditry around all of this, because right. I just think like Donald Trump is Donald Trump. Like, 
this is this is who he is. This is like sometimes even though we want to read into it like, oh, is this strategic? Because, wow, it's unifying Democrats and they were so divided. But also now it's unifying them with these unpopular figures at the forefront. Like, I, I don't know. I just think that Trump doesn't like them and thinks that he can make himself pro- I'm pro-America, they're anti-America by doing this. And I, I think if it's a political gamble, it's a wrong one. Um, but I, I also just think there's like very limited utility in trying to figure out what was his strategic thinking yeah. behind this. No, I don't. I mean, I, I, to be clear, I, I don't really care either if yeah, what, no, his, <laughs> what his goal, like what he's what his plan is and if he has one, because clearly the guy I mean, you know, clearly the guy does not think it all through. Right. Um, my what I find interesting is the analytical conversation is like, what is the impact of it? Like, regardless of what the intent was, like, what is the impact? Is the impact like moving people? Is the impact tapping into a view? Is the impact like it is galvanizing everybody else, as you saw in the midterms? I mean, this is the other thing that I think people kind of, you know, who worry about worry about the lasting impact of Trump or worrying about Trump's electoral success can look to our 2018 midterms and see, despite, you know, the right talking about the caravan and Trump talking about the caravan and so on and using that kind of language, there was a very clear at the congressional level, very clear sense of where the country was going. And it was a real repudiation of Trump and surging young voters and so on and so forth. So, you know, I'm just interested in this question of like, you know, what does it mean for us past this moment? And what does it mean currently? Is it prolonged? Is his strategy prolonging this moment or is it bringing this moment to an end? You know, uh, and just one last thing before we go to break. So the CBS poll, they showed the tweets, which I thought was interesting. So you're not just like asking people like, well, I'm going to assume I hate them or I'm going to assume I love them because, you know, this is how I feel about all his tweets. I mean, they showed the tweets in the online survey. Um, and then Morning Consult and Politico did a similar poll, and they found 58% labeled the chance, this was not about his tweets, labeled the chance as racist, and 53%, so a majority, slightly more than the CBS poll, said the tweets were racist. Um, and, you know, and I've noted on, commented on this before, I'm just kind of amazed at how many poll questions we've seen about that use the word Trump and racist, like, is Trump a racist? Do you think this thing Trump did is racist? Like, that's, you know unprecedented to have so many questions, polling questions from major media outlets about the president that basically ask, is he racist or did he do something racist? So this is just the latest in that genre of polling questions. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees, and it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google/certificates. Okay, so we're back. It's Mueller Day, and there's one more. It's morning Consult released a. Mueller-related poll, or as part of their morning consult Politico polling. And I guess they wanted to take a look to see how things had changed or not changed in views toward the investigation. Um, You know, they found that among Democrats, there's a, you know, there's a larger number that consider the investigation unfair. Yeah, there was an increase. It went up by 15 points, the percentage of Democrats who thought that the investigation had been unfair. And Republicans had moved in that same direction, 
Um, I think trust had, in the investigation had fallen by like six points uh, and distrust had gone up by six points. What I thought was notable about that was at first I was like, well, is this is this Democrats thinking that it's unfair because the conclusion was not strongly negative enough against Trump. And therefore they say, oh, well, did Trump interfere? Did Trump, you know, he him not test, you know, was there, was the administration blocking Mueller's ability? Like you could say it's not fair, not that it was unfair that it happened, but like, was it unfair in its execution because Trump got in the way? Notably at today's hearing, one of the things Mueller was asked was, were you prohibited or, or hindered in any way in your investigation by the Trump White House? And he said, flat out no that that was not a problem so i i don't know to what extent that may have been driving the narrative versus more democrats kind of coming around to the republican view on on the issue but um if it was i mean Mueller did that was one thing that was fairly conclusive today was that he said no i mean whatever you think about the conclusions we came to there was no meddling in our work to get to those conclusions yeah i mean i I think the, you know, the polling, and we've talked about this before, the polling on how people view the investigation is always complicated, right? Because it's it's very, very hard to have the level of information that you need to fully understand the back and forth. Like, it's just an overwhelming amount of detail. So, you know, you're getting your, your news filtered through, you know, your media usage and the outlets that you rely on and what you want the conclusion to be, what you think the conclusion has been, you you, you may not be clear about and what you want the conclusion to be. And, you know, and also this is, you know, we've seen this, like people f- want there to be sort of some sort of, fin- you know, finale, some sort of final sense of what happened. Um, and, you know, and, and we're not there yet in terms of, I guess we've had, we've had a lot of discussion about what happened, but what is the final answer, right? And so that's something that obviously is, is something that, you know, I think folks across party lines want to feel like they have, there was some clear conclusion. Well, um, I, but just like one question, I mean, after, yeah. so I could see like, okay, well, Mueller still needs to testify, but now that Mueller's testified, like what's, what's left the report is out and Mueller has testified. Like, I, I, I'm wondering, like, what, what would be next for people to come to a conclusion? Well, I mean, there's still congressional oversight and people looking into a variety of other, you know, there's there's a variety of things to look at, right? And and that's not even if we talk, I mean, this is putting impeachment aside. This is a, like continued congressional oversight into the, you know, Trump campaign. What is remaining that could be investigated by Southern District of New York? I mean, there's still more, you know, there's still more conversations to be had, right? And so, but sure, right? I mean, so I, I but that's not, people aren't thinking through those different legal steps. They're just like, you know, they're still talking. Why are they still talking? Like, what's the answer? You know, so I could I could see how people would feel that there's still there's still an open endedness to this um, or, you know, feel unsatisfied or dissatisfied with with what they've been hearing is what they what they think a conclusion should look like. I, I can I can see how people from different kinds of points of view could get there. Um, but obviously, there's still there's still a lot more to learn and discuss. So I guess related to that, um, and and maybe I'm just, I take a a different view because I feel like we have the 400 pages of what Mueller had to say. And I thought Southern District of New York said that they were not going to be pursuing, at least on the Trump Foundation stuff. Like it does feel like a lot of this stuff is kind of wrapping up 
uh, a bit as we head toward the election. But nonetheless, it's been a uh, well, there's still the tax return issue. I mean, there's still th- you know sure there's there's there are I I don't doubt that Democrats will will not want to make it easy for for Trump uh, to to be Trump and and do his thing. Um, but certainly, you've also have you know with everything going cuckoo in Washington constantly, it will come as no surprise to people that Pew finds Americans have declining trust in the government. Surprise, surprise. Um, The Pew Research Center has done a really interesting study where they have split Americans into three groups based on their level of kind of interpersonal trust. So not just how much you trust institutions or things, but how much do you tend to trust other people? Um, They ask a bunch of different questions about people's general trust or distrust in others. Do they feel that other people have exploitative tendencies? Um, Do they think other people tend to be helpful or selfish? Um, And then after clustering people, they then ask them, do you have a lot of confidence in a variety of other, you know, sort of big groups, things like scientists, the military, et cetera. Um, They find people tend to have pretty high level of trust in scientists, in the military, um, a reasonable amount of trust, a fair amount of trust in police officers, public school principals, um, trust in religious leaders varies greatly, whether you are a low truster or a high truster. They are not clustered together in quite the same way. And then, you know, lower trust overall for journalists, business leaders, and at the bottom of the list, elected officials. So people, even if you tend to be the type of person who trusts your fellow man, fewer than half of them think that uh, elected officials have a great deal or fair amount of confidence. Uh, that that elected officials will act in the best interests of the public. Yeah, I mean, this is this is. I mean, it's interesting, and it mirrors. You know, it obviously reminds us of something we hear qualitatively. I'm sure you hear it in focus groups all the time. This like lack of trust in everything, like just making it harder to to know who to believe, what to listen to, what's happening, what's true, what's not true. Um, you know, what comes next, like you know, for us as a country, it's just something that I hear constantly in focus groups. And this is, you know, something, something similar here. Um, you know, it's uh, the age differences are, are interesting that, that older folks are more likely to be high trusters and younger folks are more likely to be low trusters. Um, you know, that's pretty interesting. There's an educational break there too. So that's pretty interesting. And then they have this other question about whether or not people, um, you know, believe that trust in, the federal government or each other, like two different versions of the question, has been shrinking, whether it's important that we have this and does it make it harder to solve other problems. And people feel kind of similarly about whether we're talking about the federal government or each other. There's like huge numbers feel that America's trust in the federal government has has been shrinking. Three fourths feel that way. Also in that uh, trust in each other has been shrinking. About two thirds feel that way. Um, And similarly, people feel it's important to improve the level of confidence that Americans have in whether it's the federal government or each other, and that this low trust makes it hard to solve problems, whether you're talking about the federal government or each other. So um, it's interesting. It's not many, you know, not many places where people would say, yes, it's I feel similarly about like my fellow American as I do about the, you know, the federal government. But this is one of those places people feel trust is declining for both of both and that we need both, um, both of these things to improve. And it's definitely like a very clear 
thing that I've I've heard and seen in a lot of focus groups. Yeah, I think on the cross tabs of how when when Pew is dividing people up into low, medium, and high trusters, um, I am interested but not surprised to see that younger people are tend to be low trusters. Um, that they are, you know, for older Americans, only nineteen percent are low trusters. Whereas if you are under the age of 46 percent fall into that kind of low truster bucket, which on the one hand might be surprising if you assume that like people who are young and have not yet, you know, gone out in the world might still be optimistic and think humanity is good, but it's only once you've reached older age and you've been burned enough times that you're like, ah, my fellow man's no good. Um, But it, it seems to actually work the opposite way that the older you are, the more you are likely to kind of trust your fellow man. Now that may be that for younger people, they are, I mean, if you are growing up in the social media era, does that make you have a very different view of your ability to trust other people and how we deal with one another? I mean, there are all sorts of, of ways you can slice this, but I think the idea that young people are just less trusting of one another in general lines up with a lot of stuff I've seen from other research. Frankly, I think explains some of why you see young people so open to the idea of like, let's have government step in to solve problems because individuals and businesses are not necessarily going to get the job done, um, that they don't feel individuals and businesses left to their own devices without like the hand of the state are going to solve a bunch of problems. Um, so this kind of lines up with that as an explanation for why young people are not just more progressive on social and cultural issues, but also tend to be much more open to larger and more activist government. If you don't trust your fellow man, to do the right thing, then you might be more, oh, you, I mean, it could cut both ways. You could either be more open to the state, uh, intervening, or you could, if you are like a true libertarian, you could think human nature is, is not great. People are not to be trusted. And therefore, why would we put tons of power in the hands of a few of them via government? Like there are a couple different philosophical ways you can slice this. Um, but ultimately the bottom line is I'm actually not that surprised that it is the youngest Americans who are the least likely to feel trust in their fellow man. Yeah. You know, I wonder who's a truster and who's not a truster, right? It's just, I think an aggregate of kind of all, all these different trusts in all these various groups. And so I wonder, I don't think this is in the report and forgive me if this is in the report somewhere, but I don't think it is. Like, is the difference by age because younger people are less trusting of all these different groups or is there some group where younger people are like particularly low compared to, you know, it's sort of, they're so much likely below, they can't kind of catch up on the other measures as much. So like, you know, for example, police officers and religious leaders, for example, are like young people so much lower than older folks on trusts on those. Well, so the, the way that they are grouping people into high, low, and medium trusters is not actually – my reading of the report is that it is not about their views of those institutions, that it is – that these things are very related, but that the way they're doing the segment is – it's it's asking people questions about like do you think people can be trusted would would others try to take advantage of you if they got a chance do people tend to just look out for themselves so the way uh, they're breaking up good. those groups is less about just like do you trust the military and the cops trust. and it's more what do you think about human nature i mean some of these let's see some of these questions um are generally speaking, would you say most people can be trusted or that people can't be trusted? Do you think most people would try to take advantage of you if they got the chance or would they try to be fair no matter what? And would you say most of the time people try to help others or just look out for themselves? And majorities say overall that people tend to try to take advantage of you and that they'll just look out for themselves. 
But you still have by a 52 to 47 margin overall, people saying that people can generally be trusted. Um, I also think these results have interesting implications for the way we talk about the economy and what is fair or unfair along those lines and like why people have distrust of capitalism these days and what, you know, it's, I'm really interested in this study overall, but I, I think, you know, that's in particular why you see um, so many young people who are like, yeah, no, I, it feels like the world coming of age in the post-financial crisis era, it feels like everyone is out to screw me. And so, no, I don't necessarily trust people. Like that seems like a fairly common viewpoint among young Americans. Well, they had a variety and this is not broken out by different age groups, but just like different individual actions. And do you have confidence that people, you know, will will do these things, can do these things versus you don't have confidence that they'll do these things. And so this isn't just trust broadly. This is like, do you have confidence that people do the right thing in a variety of specific actions? And the ones where people have the most confidence that folks will do them is on things where it's like up to the individual to kind of follow the rules locally, right? So report a serious local problem to authorities or obey federal and state laws, do what they can to help others in need, honestly report their income. That's interesting. Um, et cetera. There you have majority say, yep, I trust people. I have a con- I have great or fair amount of confidence that people will do those. The things that are split are more about kind of our cultural discourse and our national discourse. So people are divided on whether you have a confidence that people will accept election results regardless of who wins or reconsider their views after learning new information or stay informed about important issues, respect the rights of others who are not like them. Then people are like, yeah, I'm not sure. They're more divided. The things where people are like, no, I don't have confidence are cast informed votes or have civil conversations. I mean, this is like I guess you can I guess you can look at it as like quarter full or third full. It's mostly I don't know. I feel a little I feel there's some bleakness. Although in I don't here. know that I think of those as tr- like I might think you're not reading a bunch before an election, but I don't know that I consider that to make you I guess well, I guess this isn't specifically talking about like trustworthiness. Whereas like are you follow the law? Are you honest? Do you treat others with respect? Like, I guess I don't view how much you inform yourself before you vote as being a character thing because there's an infinite amount of information you could acquire yes. before an election. Like, where's the cutoff that makes you like a good versus you should a bad know the ten person. point plan of every <laughs> yeah, like so you know ANC, that one of all your ANC point. members. Yes, I mean the <laughs> idea that people think that their fellow voter is dumb is something I hear in focus groups all the time. I mean, Margie, how many times have we been in groups where someone will be like, that ad doesn't work on me. It would probably work on my neighbor. I can see other people thinking this would change their mind, but I like to do research myself. I don't like to let TV ads tell me what to think. So I can see that persuading other people, but it wouldn't work on me. Like people have pretty, uh, they think that everyone around them is dumber than they are. Yeah, I I didn't have a I didn't feel bleak about the voting one. I felt bleak about the like trusting other, you know, having confidence that people would have civil conversations or respect the rights of others. Those are the ones that made me. I mean, yeah, like other people are not as informed in elections as I am as like 
perennial, perennial evergreen tweet, you know, but um, but the other stuff I think made me feel a little like, you know, I have confidence people behave in kind of local situations where it's uncommon on them to do the right thing in sort of an immediate local circumstance. But as part of our national dialogue, everyone still feels divided on how, you know, on how we all interact with each other. That was the part that I was feeling aggrieved by. Yeah, I don't expect everyone to read every candidate's 10-point plan for everything, and I'm not surprised that other people don't feel the same way. <laughs> that, part, that part is not breaking news, for sure. <laughs> well, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll hop across the pond to talk about Britain's new prime minister. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. All right, and we're back. So today we got photos of Boris Johnson uh, bowing to the Queen of England as he asks for her permission to form a government, and presumably it was granted. I saw one tweet that was like, her first prime minister was Winston Churchill, and now we're at Boris Johnson. Discuss. (laughs) Um, But she she has seen a lot of prime ministers in her time. Uh, The British people ultimately don't seem terribly excited about about this uh, development. I mean, Theresa May stepped down because she was sort of stuck in the uh, position that no one would want, where you are trying to go with the will of the people from the referendum and leave the EU, but do so in a way that will be minimally disruptive to the UK's economy and, and way of governing, which a hard Brexit would be where you just, boom, you just break up and you walk away and you don't even get your, you know, your T-shirt back. Uh, (laughs) like you leave all your stuff at their house, you're done. You're never going back. You're never going again. Um, so that may be the course they're on, but Teresa May was kind of in an unsustainable position of trying to negotiate the, can we please get our t-shirt back and maybe sometimes hang out as friends, uh, debate. So Boris Johnson now in control, in control, um, it looks like YouGov has asked people, not do you approve or disapprove, but how do you feel? Which best reflects your reaction to Boris Johnson becoming leader? Here, 10% of Britons are delighted and another 18% are pleased, but 10% are disappointed and 37%, the plurality, say they are dismayed. Another 17% really don't mind either way. 8% don't know. You know, I just realized this could be a pun. Dismayed. I mean, the party has technically been dismayed. Is your side hustle is like an intern for Ariel Edwards Levy? I worship. I worship at her feet. I am but a poor, poor man's Ariel Edwards. <laughs> um, um, 
I, you know, I wanted this this list of questions to be more like wonderfully English than these are. I mean, these are. I mean, they're a little bit more like dismayed would not be something we would put. I think in a in a questionnaire in the U.S. I don't think we'd put dismayed. Um, don't really mind either way. I don't know. I just wanted them to be like a little bit more something, but that's just my own because I, I I enjoy when YouGov UK puts out a poll and they're like these. These question answer categories are kind of funny, um, or yeah. at least well, funny to an American ear. This one did not go far enough in that, but that's obviously they're not. They don't need. I don't need that. I want, not a need. <laughs> anytime you're doing one of these like nominal scales, like you could yeah. ask people, oh, you know, on a scale of zero to ten, how do you feel? With zero meaning, you know, one, you know, you have two poles, and you're asking people between these two poles, place yourself on us. Right. Is this scale. rubbish or is this brilliant? Right or but, something like but that. This one is just like you're picking a couple different words. And I got to say, I've been doing some surveys recently where, you know, you use the scale, like let's take motivated, where it's like very motivated, somewhat motivated, not very motivated, not at all motivated. And like the other day, for some reason, I I got it in my head that like I hated that kind of a scale, even though I use it in surveys a lot. Because if you have very motivated and not very motivated, but you also have like two other options, like technically not very motivated kind of captures all the rest of the things on that scale. So, mm. <laughs> this is me like way overthinking a problem with these like nominal scales. But technically, if you have very motivated or very likely as an option, then technically all the other options count as not very likely or not very motivated. So why would you make it a standalone category? So how do you feel about this two by two, basically, like it's like a square? two by two matrix kind of question that I'm probably annoyed people in England taking this in the UK taking this question right so do you think Boris Johnson is or is not Britain's Trump (laughs) he is and that's a good thing he is and that's a bad thing he is not and that's a good thing or he is not and then that's a bad thing right so you know so it's good that you have it like it you know whether or not he is or his is not has a second layer of, you know, attitudes toward it, right? So it's like a two by two thing essentially, and then you don't know. And the plurality, forty four percent say he is, and that's a bad thing. Only three percent say he is not, and that's a bad thing. So I guess that's kind of a clear response. A fifth say he is not, and that's a good thing. And then twelve percent say he is, and that's a good thing. Yeah, so. <laughs> it, it's kind of the attempt, and I'm assuming the he is and that's a good thing are the, I would assume they align quite a bit with the 10% who are delighted that Boris Johnson right. is now the leader of the conservative party. Right. Um, I, I mean, I kind of like it because too often people will ask this question, but it will be double barreled and you will not give people like the, the two by two that right. you like, which do you agree with more? Boris Johnson is like Trump and he's going to embarrass us or <laughs> right. Boris Johnson is nothing like Trump and he'll do a great job. And right. like that would ignore all of the people that, you know, feel yeah. these other cross sections. So I actually, if you're going to, if you really want to ask the double barreled question, you got to do it this way. I don't mind. I don't mind doing it this way. I would imagine that people in the UK, I don't know this, right, are like, you know, we have enough things to think about whether or not this guy is like Trump is not one, two, and three of our things that we're worried about. Like this is our, you know, we have our own nation's issues to work out as opposed to like whether or not he's similar to your, you know, flawed leader. 
yeah. the U.S. is flawed leader. That's that's you know I'm sure that's why I was thinking like folks would feel aggrieved taking this question in addition to feeling aggrieved about Boris Johnson generally. So yeah, the numbers are not great for him, but conservative voters are more likely to think he is going to keep the party roughly the same. Folks who in the general population are more likely to say he's going to move the conservative party to the right. So that's interesting, but still overall, and it, that this is not clear whether conservatives feel that that's a good thing or not a good thing. That's, you know, but that's, that would be a separate measure. But I think overall the numbers seem not great for him, but you know, we'll see how they change, I guess. He's new. He's just starting off. Uh, we will, <laughs> we'll see once he, I, and I believe he chose all his cabinet ministers today and those all got announced. Um, so, you know, there'll surely be some updated polling kind of once that gets rolling. But if he can actually figure out how to how to do Brexit in a way that gets majority support, he will he will certainly go down in history um, for doing so, because that is a, a task no one else has thus far been able to figure out how to resolve. Sure. Right. So anyway, what's on the trend line this week. Uh, on the trend line this week, I'm going to be talking to Tim Alberta, the author of American Carnage. He has oh, been yes. everywhere. Um, I am only a partway through the book because it is a very large book, and I don't feel like I should lie to an author and say that I have finished their book when I have not. Um, but it is, I so highly recommend this book. And I normally I hate reading political books because why? Like, I live through this stuff. I don't want to relive it again. Right. But it is so interesting reading this book because it begins around the time that I showed up in Washington. So it's like this chronicling of like all the stuff, like unlike reading a history book that's like telling me about, you know, a, how did things happen in Washington when I was younger or before I moved here? This is like, it's recounting things that I remember like seeing in roll call or hearing my old boss talk about or um, it's like, if you want to relive the whole, like the rise of Obama and the rise of the tea party and like you, it's all, it's just fascinating to be reminded of the seeds that got planted like a decade ago that really have begun to sprout in one way or another now for good or for ill. Um, as well as some anecdotes that are mind blowing, like casually at one point he drops into a paragraph about John Boehner that like, one day John Boehner was like, even though people don't think of him as like a hardcore fiscal conservative, like one day, you know, he was really working to stop earmarks. He thought that was a waste of taxpayer dollars. And at one point, Don Young from Alaska, like corners him and holds a 10 inch blade to his throat and slams him against a wall. And Boehner's response is to go F you instead of like, yeah, like, and then in the end, somehow John Boehner's like the best man in Don Young's wedding. And like, and this is all this whole insane scene is captured in like three sentences that if you're just kind of skim reading, you'll miss. But when you catch it, you're like, wait a minute, hang on, hang on, hang on. I got to go back and reread this. This guy held a 10 inch blade to John Boehner's throat in the Capitol. And John Boehner's response was just to swear back at him. And then the one was in the others. What? I don't understand. <laughs> So it is like like every other wow. page has something like that. So I don't recommend political books really often. But if you want to know how we got where we got, like Alberta's got the goods. I cannot wait to talk to him. All right. Well, that's that is a very good description. I am now very intrigued. I, I also try like if I'm making it through a whole book, I would like it to be a bit of a vacation from, yeah. you know, 
all the Michigas. So but that does sound good. So, um, well, cool. Okay. Well, folks, we'll check it out. We're going to like have some TBD kind of announcements about like breaks and stuff in August too, in addition to, uh, you know, when you're doing jury duty. So we'll keep a watch on Twitter and we'll make those announcements to make sure you guys are prepared. So you download all the back episodes so you're ready on your long trip with your kids and you need something to put them to sleep and you want to listen to old episodes of The Pollsters, we want to make sure you're fully prepared. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find us on Twitter at, at The Pollsters, individually at, at Margie O'Mero and at K. Soltis Anderson or www.thepolsters.com. Thanks. Bye.